You're listening to Talking Europe, the podcast from the UCL European Institute. I'm Avery Annapol, the Institute's digital editor, and today I am joined by Professor Michael Shackleton. A self-described Europhile, Michael is a distinguished academic and author who spent 30 years of his career working for the European Parliament. He has written extensively on EU affairs, but his latest project is unique in its personal and intimate approach to parliamentary history. Collecting Memories, the European Parliament 1979 to 2019 is an oral archive of stories and memories from former members of the Parliament. The collection of nearly 100 interviews is available publicly and chronicled in a book titled Shaping Parliamentary Democracy. In the following conversation, we discuss Michael's experience working on this project with co-editor Alfredo De Feo and three other former European Parliament civil servants, Francis Jacobs, Gerard Leprat, and Dietmar Nickel, and Michael's thoughts about the role of the Parliament in our changing world. Michael, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. Could you start by telling me a bit about this oral archive project and how it came to be? Shaping parliamentary democracy is an idea that arose in the course of a walk about three to four years ago. We felt that uh, there were many books on the European Parliament, but what there wasn't was any uh, archive of oral interviews with members of the European Parliament. So with the help of the former Members Association, we wrote to all of the members and said, which of you would be interested in uh, being interviewed for this project? We then also uh, got help from the University of Maastricht in the Netherlands and, most importantly, we had the European University Institute in Florence agreeing to store the material on to their website. We felt that uh, it was something worthwhile doing, not least because the generation that we interviewed was fundamentally the generation active between the 1980s and the noughties. And uh, that generation is getting older and we wanted to obtain their testimony uh, at a time when they still had it some, somewhat in their, in their memory. Some nationalities, for whatever reason, didn't answer or didn't want to take part. Um, people note that there are no UKIP members, that's true, because they didn't answer, or they're not members of the former Members Association, which I think is rather more likely. As we were going along, a number of us thought, well, actually, would it not be quite good to have a, so to speak, a, a book that's, uh, if you like, offering an introduction to the archive? Uh, so that's why the, we, we created this book called Shaping Parliamentary Democracy, which uh, is structured around the main themes that we try to address in the interviews. It's grounded, in a sense, what's in the book, in the interviews that we gave, and you don't have to listen to the whole of a one-hour interview. When you did your research, what did you find that this kind of style of interviewing um, and researching brought that other academic texts didn't? Well, I think the first thing we realise is what it doesn't do. You cannot be asking for such a, an archive to provide you with accuracy. 
Secondly, clearly, the interviewees themselves uh, are inclined to put their own contribution perhaps in slightly brighter light than uh, others might do. And uh, in fact, the, the interviews reveal very interesting contrasts between different members discussing the same events. So it's a very subjective account. However, we thought there were three things that uh, an oral history could do that a written text wouldn't do. First of all, in an, on, in an oral text, people can sometimes be more honest than they are in a written text. They're prepared to admit to things that they wouldn't write down because it's there in black and white. You know, the fact that a member would admit that on their first day they actually went to the European Commission building looking for their office rather than the European Parliament office seems to me something that was refreshingly honest. The second thing was that it seemed to me that it made an important contribution towards a discuss a, a an understanding of the informal mechanisms that underlie the way in which the European Parliament works. It's about who you know and how you relate to them uh, across nationalities and across political groups. Uh, there is one extremely good interview given by uh, Malcolm Harbour, uh, who discusses the way in which the 2006 Services Directive was developed, not in formal terms, but in terms of the kind of meetings that he had with the uh, Austrian presidency at that time. And it's most fascinating at showing how the parliament... Uh, became a player that people were interested in uh yes through formal for formal reasons to do with the treaties but also to do with the ability of individuals to become involved and the last thing i think is quite important is it it gives you a sense of what these actors felt how they felt about the world. Uh, I mean, I find it quite surprising how many of them felt excited about being involved in the European Parliament. It se may seem like an over-idealistic presentation of the ideas, but they all felt in some ways they were engaged in a collective endeavour. And even if they came at it from rather different points of view, they weren't all committed Federalists by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but many of them said, actually, it was really rather fun. And yes, you can get that from a written uh, text. But uh, I think uh, this sense of how people felt about the experience comes over particularly well in oral interviews. And do you think that current members or people in this world can learn something from having those sort of feelings highlighted? Well, the generations move on. And this generation was particularly influenced by the post-Second World War period. Many of them had reasons why they felt European integration was really important as a, a way of avoiding war. Uh, and that's why I thought it's interesting that a lot of them cite that, that perhaps the most significant speech that they ever heard in the European Parliament was that by a dying President Mitterrand who said, nationalisme c'est la guerre. And I think, of course, it's interesting for present members if they have time to go and listen to this kind of thing. But of course, they are faced with a very different kind of world. And I don't think they've immediately got things directly to learn, except a sobering recognition that people have felt like they do or have been in situations like them. And uh, it may give them some ideas as to how to get out of them.
Yeah, the, the speech you mentioned by President Mitterrand, I was really struck by how many of the interviewees mentioned that. Um, if he were giving a speech today to the current parliament, what do you think he would tell them? I actually think he would say the same thing. Of course, he was referring to nationalism in a slightly different sense, but I think the growth of pop populist forces within the European Union has been a dramatic change since uh, the time of Mitterrand and Kohl. Uh, but in a sense, it reflects um, a particular view of the world, which uh, from the point of view of somebody like Mitterrand uh, is something that is highly dangerous for the, the texture of relations between member states. And that the more you look inwards to your own society and consider uh, those outside to be a threat, the more dangerous relations become between, uh, between member states. And I think that's something which uh, he, he would certainly uh, repeat, even if the accent would be slightly different. Could you tell me a little bit about your experience, uh, your personal and professional relationship to the European Parliament over these many years? My career in the European Parliament started in 1981. I had um, taken the concours, the competition, in the late 70s and had been, as, in, as was uh, traditional in those days, on a waiting list for three years. Uh, lo and behold, I was then responsible for the printing and distribution of all documents of the Parliament. However, over time, I became more and more involved with members of the Parliament. So I worked from 1985 in the Secretariat of the Budgets Committee. I worked on relations with national parliaments. I was uh, head of the Secretariat for the first Committee of Inquiry of the Parliament. Uh, and then I was put in charge of the administrative side of negotiations with the uh, Council uh, and Commission within the co-decision procedure, within the conciliation procedure, as it was called. And then I was given a completely different job, namely to try and set up a, uh, a parliamentary uh, web TV channel. I actually didn't wish to stay in Belgium when I left the Parliament, so I, I applied for and became head of the Parliament's office in London, which was a way of reintegrating into British society after 30 years. And what kept me going through darker days of working inside the European Parliament. I just thought this institution needs to exist. I do not like to contemplate what the European Union would be like without a Parliament. So for all of its uh, failings, for all of its uh, idiocies, if I may be allowed to call that the fact that we travel uh, every month, not at the moment, but usually between <laughs> Brussels and Strasbourg, I continue to feel it plays an important role in altering the texture of the European Union. You published the book last year. Um, obviously, in the months since, there have been plenty of developments regarding Brexit and now, of course, a, a global pandemic. Um, do you think that these will be kind of defining global events for the future of the parliament? Or do you have any thoughts more generally on what is shaping the future of the parliament? Well, I think it will influence the institution as it influences the whole of the European Union. It raises questions as to whether 
The European Union should have more competences in the area of health, something which the Parliament certainly supports. Uh, it raises questions of solidarity, the question of how much support the EU should provide for uh, uh, member states in difficulty. I think the, the recovery fund of uh, earlier this summer is something that, again, the Parliament strongly backs because it strongly supports the notion that we are in this together and we should try to do something uh, together, even if uh, the actual argument about how it should be precisely paid for and what should be the balance between grants and loans, of course, is something on which people disagree profoundly. One thing to say, it nevertheless is something of a miracle that the European Parliament, a parliament made up of members from so many member states, has actually managed to continue to function at all. It is fairly remarkable that it's not only enabled people to speak in the way that we are speaking to each other now, but they've also managed to organise votes uh, from people at home. The, the search for more powers was a particularly powerful part of the, uh, the engine room of the European Parliament from the early 1980s through till, uh, and through to the Treaty of Lisbon, if you like. And I think it was very widely shared. But as we entered the noughties, we also started seeing uh, the growth of more uh, populist parties like UKIP, but not only, uh, inside the European Parliament, which started altering a bit the mix. Uh, and where the positions between the parties uh, also started changing because as the uh, debate on powers slowly came to an end, there was one started to have much more of a discussion about the political shape, you know, what should policies look like? Uh, it's not only a question as to whether the European Parliament has a say, but it has a say uh, to what end? What should its position be? Now, to achieve that, traditionally, uh, you had from the late 1980s until relatively recently, you had a very clear mechanism for doing that, and that was the Grosse Coalition. The, the fact that you had the uh, what is now called the S&D group, the Socialist Group, formerly the PES, and the EPP, the Christian Democrats, uh, who together constituted well over 60% of the members of the parliament uh, for a large part of this time. This facilitated this debate. It, it made it more possible to get a common position on, uh, uh, on institutional questions. And it also provided, uh, they recognised that they had to take account of each other in overcoming the political uh, divides because they were the ones who had the votes between them. I think what's interesting is that you know, for in the last elections, twenty nineteen, it's the first time that the that the two biggest groups have fallen below the fifty percent mark, and I think that psychologically is really really important because it does oblige you to look for majorities uh, more widely. I mean, it was always true that the socialists would look to the liberals for support on, say. Uh, uh, liberal causes like uh, civil civil liberties, etc. Uh, and the EPP would tend to look to the Liberals on economic issues. Um, but those such majorities were quite, quite difficult to construct. Whereas 
Now, um, you've got no choice. You have to get the Liberals in there as well. It seems to me that the politics of the place has changed radically. Uh, and whereas what was before something which was essentially a duopoly between socialists and Christian Democrats has become a much more uh, uncertain issue where the position of other groups are important and where you're having to bear in mind that there's now a very substantial fraction of the parliament that could be considered to be from soft to hard Eurosceptic. So to get your majorities is that much harder. Um, something I found really interesting was the relationship between um, the politicians and their, their national bodies. Um, and many people said that they felt the European Parliament was more respected outside of Europe than within. Um, do you think that's true? And do you think that's changed at all since um, the people you interviewed were in the Parliament? I mean, first of all, I have to admit that I wasn't involved in external relations and tended to concentrate on internal questions. I think it's somewhat of an exaggeration to say that, you know, the parliament is uh, seen much more as much more significant outside uh, the EU than, uh, uh, than inside. But what you can say and what the Lisbon Treaty was extremely important in doing was that it gave the parliament a power of consent over practically every international agreement. This power has already proved really important in uh, generating quite difficult arguments about, for example, the swift uh, regulation about transfer of information to the United States. And it's one of the things that's rather curious about uh, the negotiations between uh, Britain and the European Union at the moment is that at no point does anybody point out that the European Parliament actually uh, does have quite a significant role to play in this process and that uh, it would be extremely hard to get the European Parliament to agree to something that manifestly went against positions that it has taken up to now. Britain is, in a sense, the outlier that most countries that are dealing with the European uh, Parliament will tend to try to cajole and persuade the European Parliament to go in their direction whenever an agreement is coming up because they realise that its position is, is important in deciding things. So do you think the influence of the Parliament has been overlooked in the Brexit negotiations? As far as I'm aware, it hasn't been mentioned at any time, except as an aside, that we need to reach an agreement so that it can be ratified by all the parliaments, including the European Parliament. But um, the uh, way in which the withdrawal agreement was negotiated was a very good example of where the parliament did actually play quite a significant part. Michel Barnier, before he went and negotiated with the British, he always spoke to the European Parliament. And after the negotiations, he went back to the Parliament to tell them what he'd uh, come up with. And there was an attempt to sort of align positions so that you didn't have any surprises at the end of the day. You know, the Parliament was going to vote for it because it had been aware of what was coming on all of the time. Uh, so I think it might have been useful for some Conservatives to have gone to the European Parliament and talked to members of the Parliament, but uh, that was not seen as a, uh, as a priority. Um, could you tell me a bit more about your chapter in the book, which focused on accountability and the relations and tensions between Parliament and the EU executive bodies? What was interesting to you about this topic or about your findings? 
I've written a little bit about this subject because I am very fascinated about the question of whether the Parliament is seeking to make the executive dependent on it, uh, in so to speak, trying to create some kind of um, government uh, led by a majority in the Parliament, or whether it's rather a question of it uh, being a question of interdependence, uh, that uh, the, par the Parliament has its role, the Commission has its role, and the two can better assist each other by maintaining a degree of uh, separateness particularly since the Parliament started acquiring powers of co-decision, because co-decision meant that the Parliament now was in a position to negotiate directly with the Council of Ministers and, in theory, didn't need to deal with the, uh, with the Commission, though, of course, the Commission was present and actually played an important role. But it produced the notion that somehow the, the Commission should be more dependent upon uh, the other institutions and in particular the Parliament. And the whole idea of having Spitzenkandidaten, candidates for Commission president that would be chosen by uh, political parties before European elections, was based on the notion that that person would be uh, legitimated through the elections, but at the same time would enjoy a majority in the parliament and therefore would be, ex therefore would be expected to fulfil the desiderata of that majority. And that's a very different idea from the idea of uh, the, the Commission as a body that uh, has got its own autonomy, that makes its own proposals, uh, something which the Commission continues to want to do and does not like the idea of being told it has to do X or Y just because the Parliament thinks it's a good idea. So the, there is a struggle between these two ideas, which seems to me very particular to the European Union and is not resolved. It continues to be part of the uneasy balance that exists between the institutions. You had intimated to me you wanted to talk a little bit about relations between the European Parliament and national parliaments. And I think that is a kind of another of these areas where uh, you have uh, two competing schools. You have one school represented by one of the members in the book who says that actually national parliaments and the European Parliament have a joint enemy. The term joint enemy he uses, uh, uh, I'll let you find out who it was. You can go and listen to the <laughs> interviews. Uh, and they, that is the executive, whether it is at national or at uh, EU level. And whereas there are other people who felt very strongly that the problem was that the European Parliament was too detached from the national political world and that uh, to improve that you had to have better relations with national parliaments uh, and so all kinds of structures were set up with strange acronyms like COSAC to try to give a framework for relations between the two sides to develop. From my experience of watching these uh, two sides sort of approach each other, there is a, an inherent tension between the two roles. It's not possible to 
either have them all on one side against the executive or, on the other hand, uh, trying to just uh, you know, sort things out by meetings. Everybody I spoke to uh, in these interviews, and mainly my interviews were with British members, but not exclusively, uh, was that, uh, that they found that uh, actually when they came back to Britain, um, either national politicians just didn't want to know because it wasn't relevant to their immediate concerns at that time. And in those circumstances, members said, well, quite frankly, I decided it because nobody back home was had the energy or the, the time to think about it. Inevitably, of course, that generates a certain jealousy, especially if it assumes a certain importance as, a, as an issue. I think, of course, the issue is particularly tense in the British case because of things like the doctrine of the sovereignty of parliament means that it's very, very hard to get British politicians to sort of sign up to notions of shared sovereignty. Uh, this is a much easier thing to do in not all, but some other member states uh, where uh, the notion that these members of the European Parliament actually could be quite useful and you uh, could use them as a way of improving your position nationally was quite, uh, quite strong. Do you think that tension contributed to the sort of dissolution of the British and European relationship? Not fundamentally, no. Uh, it, it was another forum in which that tension was played out. And uh, it was most obvious when I was head of the office in London, one of the great questions was the fact that uh, uh, members of the European Parliament could no longer obtain a pass to go into the House of Commons and have a drink or a eat in, the, in there. And, but they could into the House of Lords. And these were, I spent many hours discussing, well, couldn't we sort this out? And there were all kinds of reasons why people didn't want to do it. So it was... Uh, it, it, yes, it was a forum for the argument, but the, the, honestly, the argument about Brexit is, uh, goes way, way beyond the, the European Parliament. I don't think that, uh, that's a central part of the, uh, of the issue. Looking to the future then, um, the book concludes with a view of the Parliament's role going forward, um, and several of the MEPs felt that the cause to which they had devoted their careers had failed. Do you think it's failed, or do you think as some suggested, is it doomed to succeed as a project? Hmm. I think it's inevitable that any member of the European Parliament from the United Kingdom, and for that matter, anybody like me who'd worked for the European Parliament, should feel that in some sense we had failed, unless we happen to be paid up members of the UK Independence Party. That's slightly different. But for the rest of us, uh, the sense that we had not been able to persuade uh, the Brit British society to be feel at ease with the existence of the European institutions and the European project is, I think, a, a failure. Whether it was a failure that could have been avoided is another question. Uh, I think it's important to not exaggerate um, because though the British members I talked to all talked pretty much in those terms. Uh, and even when I interviewed them a couple of years back, they all felt Brexit was coming. They didn't see that it could be avoided. I didn't have that sense from other nationalities. When you listen to their interviews, uh, they are really much more hopeful. They tend to give a rather different emphasis to things. 
I think uh, the former president of the parliament, Hans Gert Pettering, gave a really rather interesting interview uh, in which he said, look, we're no longer in the business of trying to get uh, increases in our powers through treaty revision. We're much more involved in the question of identities, about the possibility of establishing a, ba a balance between what he describes as Heimat, Vaterland und Europa, your home, your country and Europe. And uh, though it's not an easy thing to see how you generate that balance in a way that people can be happy with, it seems to me He's right in the sense that uh, you can't just have a parliament that is up there in the clouds doing great things. We always thought we were terribly important when we were there, and indeed it all felt extremely important, but it has to be grounded in the world of, of ordinary people. And uh, that, I think, is the challenge for the parliament in the coming years. One of the things that I think is really important for the parliament is its ability to... Uh, make a reality of the notion that the European Union is a centre for certain values uh, and not just an economic project. Uh, the ongoing argument about uh, the rule of law, whether there should be uh, particular conditions governing access to money as to whether one has or has not respected certain values. This is something that's it's really quite important what happens in the argument about this that's happening at the moment, but will not go away, whatever the agreement that may well be reached uh, soon. And I think the Parliament's in a particular position to try to defend that, because it's not confronted in the same way as member states are by a situation where you have to have a unanimity and uh, therefore you make concessions that you might not really want to do. So, it's a curiosity that suddenly uh, Mr. Rutte, the Dutch uh, Prime Minister, who's always had a very dim view of the European Parliament, suddenly has uh, turned around and said, the Parliament's doing an excellent thing, standing up for the rule of law and the values of the European Union uh, uh, in, the, in the discussion about the disbursement of monies. Uh, it's a sort of backhanded compliment, actually, and I think something which... Uh, uh, you know, gives a pointer to the kind of things that the Parliament should be very much uh, pressing in the years that, to come. Something that I, I loved about the book was how much it acts as a, a detailed guide for future research, and you suggest all sorts of questions. So if I may, I'd actually like to ask you one of the questions you propose in the book, um, which is what criteria should be used to judge whether the Parliament is successful over the next 20 years? Not an easy question. First of all, it's whether it can become perceived more readily as one of the places where political conflicts are resolved. It's quite important that you have a body where people recognise more widely than they do at the moment that what the parliament says has a bearing on, uh, on the way in which European society develops. And as I suggested before, I think the other question is the question of uh, identity of uh, populations. In other words, I think it's, it is important that people feel that European Parliament is, for example, a place that it's worth voting for. I cannot deny that I was delighted that the European Parliament got over 50% participation in the elections of 2019. It's quite a significant rise in participation, 6 or 7%. 
and su suggest something about the way in which people perceive the institution, how people perceive the institution and whether they can see it as something that's worthwhile. Uh, something It's extraordinarily hard to generate in this country, but I think for the rest of the European Union is, is important. And indeed, if I were to end on a slightly controversial note, it would seem to me that un until uh, the British political culture can somehow accept the notion of a parliament doing a, a job of work inside the European Union that's legitimate and useful, it will be very hard for Britain to rejoin the European Union. Well, let's end on that note. Um, thank you very much for joining me and for coming on the podcast. You can find the archive of oral interviews from Collecting Memories on the website of the Historical Archives of the European Union. The book, Shaping Parliamentary Democracy, is available as an ebook or hardcover from Palgrave Macmillan. You can find the UCL European Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and online at ucl.ac.uk slash European Institute. More episodes of Talking Europe are available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and on our website. Thank you for listening.